my uh, five-year-old is very aware of this at 6 a.m. this morning. <laughs> According to the National Retail Federation, the 80% of us in this nation who celebrate this holiday spend $2.4 billion on Easter family. That, by the way, is a higher number than the number of the proportion of the country that celebrate and spend money on Halloween, which is quite incredible, isn't it? 49% of the nation uh, said when surveyed that they'll go to church today. <coughs> just disregard for a moment that probably around 15% of those people were lying. People were supposed to say that. But it's, it's kind of something to stop and think about, isn't it? Almost half the country going to church today to say to Christ, He is risen.
which Ezra and William's family based their hopes for their son's future in. This thing compelled Jeff and Matt to take a fully closed public drink in a hot tub in a minute. <laughs> in fact, Paul said that um, if this thing didn't really happen, then there's no point to anything we preach, no point to anything in our faith. We may as well just head out into the sunshine and have a spicy margarita. What we're here to celebrate today with baby dedications and baptisms and chocolate eggs and tacos. Unfortunately, this spicy mom's going to have to wait until we're off our USD property. <laughs> but God, who is three, three persons in one God, the only God, poured himself out and was born as a Palestinian Jew who lived and died to show us this new wisdom. A whole new way of living. A whole new way that shatters injustice and division. And that he taught us what love looked like. And then he died. And when he died on a Roman torture device, he took death with him. All separation that has ever occurred between us and him and his love. And then he rose again. He came back to life in his human body and walked and taught among his followers for 40 days before ascending to heaven. This is the good news that we celebrate every day. And it strikes me, a female born in the north of one so-called Christian country, speaking to you in another so-called Christian country, approximately 1,985 years later, is that every single one of us has a reaction to this information. And I don't mean in our spirits, I mean in our brains, our unique neurologies. How did those statements that I just made fire around in your brain? That he, he lived as a matter of historical record. What about the one about him being the only God? What about that he came to show us what love looked like? That he came to destroy every category of injustice and division? Whirring and whirring around our cultural and individual experiences, our understanding of what has come before us, our knowledge of which I'm sure for most of us makes it easier to recall examples that sit at polar opposites with love, justice and kindness <coughs> in terms of what we know of the church's legacy. If we stop and consider what we're actually declaring today when we say he is risen, we get right to the crux of our feelings about objective truth, <coughs> right to the crux of our cultural realities, the things that inescapably affect the way that we see the world, right to the crux of our personal, deeply personal experiences of prayer and the love of the Father and faith and how accepted we are. These are subjective, not always rational, but meaningful, informative and oh, but so important to be there. It's the historicity that stands in your way 
the historical arguments, the idea that this is a fact, that Jesus rose from the dead, if that's what gets in the way of this having a relevant part to play in your life, I shouldn't presume to imagine that in the sort of four or five minutes I've got to talk on this bit today, I'm going to change your mind. But I will give it a go. I can't not bring this stuff up and not mention that there's really compelling evidence that this really happened in real life in history. No credible scholar would argue that there wasn't a historical figure known as Jesus who mercied in Palestine or that he was crucified. There's little debate about those things. There are Jewish and Roman um, sources as well as Christian ones that date very soon after it happened that mention his life and his death. The issue of debate is singularly around the issue of the resurrection. Four of the six biblical sources um, of the resurrection story are in the Gospels. One is in Acts. And the sixth was written by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth. And it was written about 20 years after Jesus died. So here it is, 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He means dead. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Here's the very interesting thing about this one. Very, very, very few people in these days could read or write. Basically, about 12% of the city populace was imagined to read or write. Pretty much no one in the rural areas could read or write. So when Paul wrote a letter like this, he was writing it to the elders of the church, and they would pass the letters around between the different communities, and they would read it out to people. This brand new movement, like any ancient belief system, built itself around creeds, memorized statements of belief, to celebrate together, to recall together, to experience together. What's very easy for us to miss as we read this passage in the New Testament is that verses 3, 4, and 5 Christ died for sins of the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised on the third day of the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. This is a creed that dates back to five years within the death of Jesus, which is widely agreed upon historically. So, this is a historically verifiable letter that includes a creed that predated it by about 15 years, that includes mention of the witness of quite a large number of people who were still alive the ones who weren't sleeping, when it was written. And it said that they had met the risen Jesus, having seen him die. If we can convince ourselves the resurrection was a made-up story, if for whatever reason we can explain the very unlikely of Jesus' body either being hidden or stolen, given the infamously conscientious nature of the Roman soldiers guarding it, if we can explain the disciples Christless on their way, dejected, deniers, depressed, after a catastrophic failure, really, when Jesus died on the cross of the disciples' adventure, on their way home, changing their minds, rousing, mustering the energy that it must have taken to form a new, new movement, that many of them went on to be willing to die for. If we can imagine that either of them were either mad, or all lying, or were all hallucinating, which, as a um, psychological phenomenon, to, do, to hallucinate the same thing is very, very unlikely. We still have one problem if we can imagine all of those things happened, and that's the birth of the church. Within 20 years of the crucifixion, 
there were people across the Eastern Mediterranean worshiping Jesus. Within a hundred years, large numbers of Christian communities have been formed, often in the face of persecution, across most of the known world. Given that it started with an executed Jewish miracle worker and a handful of ordinary people, the explosive growth of Christianity requires an explanation. The explanation we have is that Jesus rose from the dead and ushered in a new reality. And then shortly after he ascended to heaven and ushered in another one. It grew, you see, we believe, not just because some really excited people, whoever they were and however many of them there were, saw something, heard something, believed something, and this incredible new life-changing thing, not just facts memorised in creeds. It grew, and it continues to grow, because of the experiences of people like you and me. The personal, emotional, often subjective experiences that we have when we meet his spirit. The one who was sent when Jesus departed. Not just a few select people in an isolated historical moment. The spirit is here for all of us. To fill us whenever we want, over and over again. I know that this historical factual stuff floats some people's boats. And it makes some of us sail off to the land of what's that watching me, love? We're all different, aren't we? Truth be told, even the most articulate and brilliant arguments for the historicity of this stuff doesn't do very much for me, for my what we call faith. But then, I'm easily excited by seeing you know, fire breathing dragons and then another. <laughs> <laughs> and I will not hear that word about episode one's flying scene. <laughs> not want more that word about that. Hate is going to hate. Yes, this is a Game of Thrones reference. I'm very sorry. <laughs> if you had told me 15 years ago that I'd be standing in front of the church declaring there is a Lord, I would have been a bit sick in my mouth. Not because I had questions about the historical validity of any of this back then either. My issues were purely experiential. I had experienced things that I deemed to be hypocritical and actually in a couple of cases abusive at the hands of church leaders. In my experience, generally put, being a Christian made you no less likely to suck, and I wanted nothing more to do with them. But I had a problem. Being free and untethered by Christians and their rules was great. But my neural pathways were formed all the same to believe. Because I'd seen things. I'd seen things that defied, as far as I could understand it, any explanation other than God is real and he's powerful. Things I'd seen and stories I'd heard from my dad, who had been a missionary in China since the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, and my mum's family, who were also poets and family um, missionaries in East Africa, and from churches we visited to travel around great kids across Europe, some in America, a lot in Asia. I've seen things. I've known of counselling disorders, I've seen spine straightened, I've seen lives restored, I've seen demonic depression released, and then demonic depression is not something that we 
like to hear about in our culture, but there are others around the world, world today where this is a completely normal realm of life. One story stuck in my mind this week. Um, it was a, a colleague of my dad's who was a Russian man who'd been a KGB agent and um, abusive alcoholic, and we all got from that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> His conversion story alone was incredible because he just had this mind, this vision of Jesus that took him from one part to completely another. He was now a Bible smuggler, this was the 90s, um, between the Russian and Estonian border, and an underground creature, mainly in Russia. He'd drive carloads of Bibles across the border, which he noticed was a highly illegal, highly dangerous activity. And he told us a story one day about how it all went very wrong because it was night, and he thought he'd get across the border, and he was being pulled over with a truck full of Bibles by the border police, which was going to mean probably torture and probably a lot of jail time. And as he opened the truck, knowing that there were a lot of Bibles in there, there was nothing in there. They completely vanished. Closed the trunk went safely on his way to the Christians who were waiting for the Bibles, and there they all were. I grew up hearing about this stuff all the time. My questions weren't anything to do with historical validity, or anything to do with is God real or powerful. My questions were, is God good? Is he nice? Does he punish disobedient children with horrible things? Does he try to teach us a lesson before we disobey? Does he send innocent people who've never even heard about him, or if they have, they've been taught awful things about him, to hell because they don't conform to the rules? Does he care when we hurt? If I'm really honest, I also have another big question, which is, if I start following him, is my life going to suck to me? <laughs> this was my condition when I annually arrived at the Alpha Corps of the church at Edinburgh, where it came from, in search of my goodness of God. I knew the doctrine, I knew the power, but I needed the goodness. I needed to know who was merciful and loving. And I sat down next to Donna. Donna impacted my life more than I can ever tell you. She'd been um, quite a big name in Britpop, and if you know the genre, you will definitely know her band. If you don't know the genre, Britpop was like sort of post-punk British thing with much better fashion and obviously worse teeth. <laughs> just, I can't. My dentist is here and I always make teeth jokes when he's here. Next to you, Dr. Mike. <laughs> Donna didn't have bad teeth, just for the record. But her fame was not the part of the story that was interesting because what happened from the peak of her career was what often happens with heroin addiction. She lost most of her money, most of her friends, and almost her life to the addiction. And when in rehab for the umpteenth time, she lay on her bed one night and asked this higher power to be real, to rescue her from this affliction. Donna had never been to church, didn't know anything about the rules, didn't know anything about the prayer, didn't actually cry to this woman either, even remember ever having heard the name of Jesus. But the night that she lay on her bed and prayed that prayer, the Holy Spirit filled her with so much power that she spontaneously spoke in tongues without even knowing that was a thing. And the experience lasted for several hours, but at the end of it she was healed of her addiction, never ever tempted again. 
And when I met her, uh, it was several months later, and she'd been on this little tour of, of English churches trying to find out the truth behind this Jesus that she'd met. The very compelling thing to me, as she told me these stories, and she described her love of Jesus at this point, is that she was here out of complete openness to following him. There was no compulsion, no religion, no cultural indoctrination, no fear of hell, just the love of Jesus. Imagine what that would feel like. These stories are not isolated. We've seen person after person restored. Supernaturally able to forgive someone who's been to them the last time around and redeemed. And we slept, not always overnight, but undeniably so. Because this is what following Jesus looks like. His goodness. It's more real to me now than any goodness I can ever contemplate. He's not disappointed. He's not angry. Jesus' only anger, in fact, during his ministry, was preserved for the people that he saw getting in the way of this. The religious leaders who weighed people down with guilt and shame. Guilt and shame hold us back, I think, for so many of us in ways that we don't even know. I am very sure that Jesus wants to take away from the If what you have experienced of Jesus doesn't look like this, doesn't feel like love, doesn't feel like freedom, then can I suggest that what you have experienced wasn't Jesus? He doesn't do shame or disappointment or leaving it anywhere out. He doesn't love.